Hello, hello, this is Brooke DeVard, and you're listening to the Naked Beauty Podcast. Hey, Brooke. Hi, Gigi. So today I'm joined by my dear friend, Brooke, who is actually the inspiration for Driven Minds. This podcast would not have existed without her because in 2019, she asked me to come on her show, Naked Beauty, and talk about my mental health journey. And it was the first time I spoke to anyone about it. And Brooke just created the most safe space to do it. And I am forever grateful. Thank you so much, Gigi. I mean, the response from that episode was incredible. And so many people within the Naked Beauty community felt so heard and understood by you sharing your own journey with mental health. It's not an easy thing to talk about, but I've been in awe to watch you grow as a podcaster as you do these interviews for Drippin' Minds with some really established people that we know in the industry that we normally see in very glamorous settings, but you're having conversations with them about their own struggles, about anxiety, about depression, about imposter syndrome that have just been really wonderful. So you should feel amazing about your show and the way it's grown over the past few years. Well, thank you. It is an honor hearing that from you as my number one inspo. And what I love about your podcast, too, is that I don't really identify as being someone who is really into beauty, but you make me curious about it. And you also paint a picture of its intricacy and its diversity and how beauty actually is so indicative of who we are inside and how we can use beauty to express ourselves. So I have gotten deep into it. And that's the perfect segue into this conversation with Tan France, because the way that he so expertly talked about his own mental health journey, but also the importance of self-expression, mm. of wearing clothes that make you feel good, his skincare, his haircare. I mean, we're going to get into all of it in this episode, but I really appreciate the way that we were able to talk about beauty in a way that was not superficial, in a way that's so much more deeply connected to your sense of self, your place in the world, and why that's so important to him. So it was a wonderful conversation honored to have the conversation with you. It was really a lot of fun. Me too. And without further ado, here is our episode with Tan France. You'll know real when you get it. It will say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I will say, if there's an episode I've overthought in terms of what I'm wearing, this would be the one. So, <laughs> Can I be really honest about that? I get that almost every interview mm -hmm. in real life and over Zoom. I am seldom focused on what somebody else is wearing. Really? I seldom notice anyone's got a head. Because <laughs> I do what I do for a living, I'm always concerned about what I'm wearing. I couldn't care less about what somebody else is wearing. I just think, am I making the choice that people will think, okay, yeah, that makes sense that he's who he is. That's so funny. You do have a beautiful shirt on. Thank you. I do love a Bodhi moment. I was going to say, it looks like Bodhi. It's gorgeous. Who's Bodhi? Oh, gosh. Um, <gasps> oh, my God. I feel uh, Gigi, so okay. shamed. So, Brooke, is it just you and I going forward? Are you are you getting <laughs> Gigi off this call or is it me? Oh, my God. Guys, stop. I feel so ashamed. Bodhi is, uh, what, oh, how could I describe it? A cult brand. Yes. They have a cult following. Wildly successful. Anyone who's anyone in our world loves and appreciates Bowie. I worked in Vogue, okay? <laughs> you know what? It's, it, it is it is small. It's like on the smaller end. It's spelled as if it's Bode, B-O-D-E. Oh my God, of course I know Bode. But it's actually pronounced Bode. I didn't know that was Bode. Okay, it was a pronunciation issue. I'm semi-redeemed. <laughs> so we're all in different states right now, I think. I'm in New York. Brooks in L.A. 
You are in Salt Lake City, Utah. Salt Lake City, Utah, yeah. How did you end up in this Southwest Oasis? Many reasons, but the first one is I lived in New York for a short time in my very early 20s, and my housemate in New York was from Salt Lake City, Utah. And he'd asked me if I'd ever been, if I had any interest, and I was like, I've never heard of Utah. So... I will happily go there. We don't get a lot of American geography in Europe. Like we know New York and California, but between those two places, we don't know that much about it. And so I decided to visit and fell in love. Truly the first 20 minutes, I was like, this is gorgeous. This is better than I've ever experienced. Uh, A better experience than I've ever had in any place. Um, We're surrounded by the mountains. The people are so sweet. And so I kept returning. I gained friends. And then 15 years ago on one of my many trips, I met my husband and decided to move here. And originally you're from Doncaster, Don, Doncaster. <laughs> I love the pronunciation, Gigi. Thank you so uh, Doncaster. Much. Yeah, I'm from Doncaster, which is the in the north of England. Our closest like big city is Manchester. And what was the atmosphere of your childhood? Twofold. Wonderful and positive within the home. Just so lovely to be part of a South Asian family. I'm still very, very South Asian. You can take a person out of a South Asian community, but you can't take that South Asian out of that person, regardless of where I am. I live in one of the whitest places one would ever see. And still... I'm so South Asian. And so life was beautiful. It was really cultural. We had a lot of experiences that I think many don't have because of that family bond and that community bond. However, outside the house, it was horrible. Hated it. I absolutely hated it. I will preface what I'm about to say by saying there are wonderful people in Doncaster. The majority of the people in Doncaster I found were incredible. However, it's those mean horrible, racist, homophobic people that are usually the most vocal and they're Mm. the ones that can make an experience for you really shitty. Uh, So that's why I say uh, it it, it was twofold. It was bittersweet in so many ways. As soon as I I would enter the home, it was full of the smell of South Asian food, which I love so much and love and support of a, a very large family, including an extremely large extended family, over 150 of us, like loads of us. However, yeah, every time you'd step out the house you just knew that you were a target we lived in such a white community there were probably eight to ten other south asian families there were only not even 10 south asian kids in my school and they were the only people of color everybody else was white that really does affect you as a kid Uh, people constantly having questions about who you are where you're from why do you eat the, the things you eat why do you have that certain smell that you have no control over yeah life was really shitty as a kid But it sounds like your family did a lot to reaffirm your own culture in the home. Oh, yeah. And I think that's so important. I am a mother now. I have a two-year-old. And Gillian and I actually went to school together. Private school, Upper East Side, New York. You can only imagine. Diversity was not a thing. There weren't very many Black girls at the school. I was one of very few. Yeah. I really credit my parents for making me feel beautiful and feel understood at home. Yeah. What were some of the things that your parents did to kind of reaffirm your identity? I've heard you talk about coming out and them not even really understanding what that meant when you were saying that you're yeah. okay. Like, what, okay, yeah. what does this mean? Um, but how did they reaffirm your identity at home? We didn't shy away from it. My parents, although they wanted us to learn English so we could assimilate and get used to the schooling in the UK, at home, it was incredibly Asian. And so to affirm our culture was so easy because it, we were surrounded by it. The food we ate was always Asian food. Like maybe once or twice a month, my mum would make something called English food, which she still calls English food, which was not English food. It was maybe Thai, Chinese (laughs) pizza, but it was always English food. And so, yeah, almost always in the home, we were experiencing our own culture. And so we would only watch South Asian television, usually Bollywood. We would only really speak in our own language, which is an English. We would only wear South Asian clothes. It was very rare we'd find, you'd find us wearing English clothes or Western clothes, sorry. There was no need to affirm it. It was life. It was Mm -hmm. everything, yes. It was as if we were living in Pakistan or India in our home. I love that. And you have such amazing skin. Like, I'm, I'm going to ask you all about your skincare routine, nice. hair care, everything. <laughs> but, you know, the reason I bring it up now is because I work in the beauty space and I see all of these natural brands and everything's that clean beauty. And I think about yeah. how much 
like rich beauty tradition and history there is in South Asia? Were there any ingredients or practices or face masks or like, were you doing like turmeric face? Like, were there things that you learned at home that you still employ in your beauty practice today? One of them was, uh, funnily enough, turmeric. We call haldi. I didn't know it as turmeric until I moved to America. So yeah, haldi is a really common practice. It's something that we just, it's a powder. It doesn't have to be a powder, but it was a in powder form that we would get it. And we would uh, use a, a water and a coconut oil. And that combined, you would use on your skin and it would create the most incredible texture to your skin. However, turmeric we also used when you get, you know, you get a canker sore in your mouth and it's just so painful. You, I'm telling you, drop of water, dip your finger in haldi and then put that on the canker sore. Wow. Within a few hours, it's gone. I mean, it stings for the first two seconds. But as soon as that that initial shot goes away, it's so soothing. So that definitely. And then, so I learned to do this much later on, but my mom had made it clear. She used to do this when we were younger. Yogurt. We use yogurt a lot in our beauty products. And one of those things is Indian tea or green tea in yogurt. And then you put that on your face. It is the reason I think my skin is the way it is. I've been using this technique for about 20 years and I think it's incredible. I use it maybe once or twice a week. I'm going to tell you what it is really quickly. Yeah. So yeah, I was going to say, we need the full breakdown. Like how, how, cause I'm going to do this after this call. <laughs> She's not kidding, by the way. She will make yeah. this in her kitchen when you hang up. So Greek yogurt, take like a cup of Greek yogurt. And then all you're going to do is steep a green tea tea bag in some boiling water for just a few seconds, just to soften it up. You don't need that water at all. You don't need the actual tea. You're taking the tea bag, opening it up, and then putting the tea bag contents of the actual tea into the yogurt. Just one tea bag. Mix that up. And then you are going to put it on your face as if, are you both too young to know what Mrs. Doubtfire is? Do you know what that is? Blessed by the compliment, but we are old enough. An iconic film. <laughs> okay, okay. So Mrs. Doubtfire, remember when she dips her face into that frosting? So that's how thick you want it. Like you want it thick, thick. Like use at least half of the cup that you've created and leave it on your skin for 10 minutes, scrape it off, wash it off, use your, your regular moisturizer. I'm telling you, it's the reason why I've managed to keep my skin the way I have. And I turned 40 this month. Like it's a lot. One, when I saw that you were turning 40, I was blown away. I mean, your skin is like just gorgeous. That's very kind. But you know, everything you're saying, it's like lactic acid is in yogurt. Yeah. Green tea has all of these specific extracts. And then you, there are these creams that are like $400, yeah. $500. And they just have like I tiny know. little amounts of the pure yeah. ingredients. So I love that you do this. Yeah. Because of the position I'm now in, or I now I find myself in, I'm gifted a heck of a lot of beauty products that I would never have paid for 10 years ago. Like I would wouldn't have spent $400 on a cream. It just wouldn't have happened. Uh, however, I've gifted all those things now. And so often I find that they pale in comparison to the yogurt mask I use. Yeah, I love it. I will say if someone's white and extremely fair skinned, it does seem to aggravate their skin. If you're not the kind of person who has pure like alabaster skin, it makes such a difference. Can you tell us about the trajectory between Doncaster? I can't say it in a non-English accent. Doncaster <laughs> and New York City. How'd you end up hopping the pond? So going back to when I was a kid and how intense life was outside of home, I always knew that England wasn't my home. It didn't feel like home. Nobody made it feel like home. The house I lived in was home. But outside of that home, I just thought I spend a heck of a lot of time outside this home, even as a kid. I realized that spending so much time outside of my home didn't feel safe. And why would I choose? Why does my family, why does my whole community choose to stay here? And Pakistan wasn't a consideration because I had gotten used to the amenities of the UK, quite frankly, and I didn't want to give those up. And so I would watch, we would watch a fair amount of Western television when my parents were at work. My sisters would watch 90210, ER, Melrose Place. And I was fascinated by those places thinking, that's where I want to go. Like that looks glam. It looks fab. I want to, I want to see what America is all about. And so uh, from the earliest age, I remember thinking my first trip, I don't want to go on a vacation that all the other Brits go on. I don't want to go to Spain. I don't care about Spain. I want to go to America. 
because Spain for us, that, that's not to denigrate Spain, but Spain for the UK is like Puerto Vallarta for Americans. Like it's a quick trip you make that's an hour away that you know you can get really cheap alcohol and you get drunk every night. And that wasn't for me. I wanted to experience America. And so my first trip abroad other than Pakistan was to New York. I told my family, my, my father had passed away by this point. So my father passed away when I was 13. And then when I was 16, I was such a good boy. And for anyone not seeing my hand action, I just did air quotes. I pretended to be such a good boy. I was so innocent. I was always doing the right thing. I would cook for my mom. I would take care of my mom. Where do you think that came from, that good boy syndrome? Because I had a little bit of that in me. And then I rebelled for like seven years. But I definitely resonate with that. I don't know why, because I'm not this person anymore. I felt like I needed to be such a rule keeper. And I think because I was raised so beautifully, beautifully by my mom and my siblings and my dad, but later on by my siblings, they always gave me everything I needed. I'm not talking about material things. I'm talking about love and support that I thought I've got nothing to rebel against. Mm. I'm treated so respectfully in this house. My opinion is here. And and so there's no reason to be difficult. And my mom had taught me to cook at such a young age. I had a sister and and brothers. My mom couldn't teach any of them to cook because they weren't interested. So instead, she taught me and she forced me when I was a kid to watch her cook. And so by the time I hit 13, 14, I wanted to cook for her. I wanted to take care of my mom. I'm still that person that just wants to take care of his mom and to make his mom proud. But also I knew that I was a queer boy and I knew that I was going to get up to, again, air quotes, no good. And so Mm -hmm. I needed to do all I could to counterbalance it. Because if I was a good boy, if I was then going to be a naughty boy, they wouldn't suspect that I was being a naughty boy behind the scenes. Again, naughty boy. Well, the story I'm about to tell you makes it very clear. I was not a rule keeper. I was a rule breaker and I was definitely a naughty kid. I had been good for years and years and years. I'd taken care of my mom and my siblings to the best of my ability. And then when it came to my 17th birthday... I said to my mom, I really want to go to my friend's house across town and stay for a few days. I've never stayed at anyone else's house before. It was forbidden in our culture, in our community. Just give me this. Let me have five days. You know what a good boy I am. I'm not going to cause any drama. And so instead, I convinced my equally stupid friends, who were also 16, to come with me to New York for four days. And so we went to New York for the best four days of my entire damn life. Now the thought of that makes my stomach turn thinking, 16, you left the country without telling any of your family members. And you went, oh my gosh, and went to America and was clubbing with grown-ups? Like, that's insane. You probably, like, ran into Gillian and I. Uh, Seriously? <laughs> if you were at Jay-Z's Club 4040, then yes, I you, we definitely would have partied together. Yeah, yep, we were there. Lotus, Beatrice, all the places. Oh, it was the best. It was the best. Brooke and I were awful. And her parents were way cooler than mine. So I'd be like, oh, I'm sleeping at Brooke's tonight. And then Brooke and I would be out till... I mean, what, her parents were way cooler and gave her a better curfew. So we would be out till all hours. There wasn't a curfew. There was no need for a curfew. We were home all the time. And so my mom and my siblings, they never found out well until much later, a few years ago. But yeah, that was how I really started to experience America. I visited for the first time and thought, this is where I feel like I'm at home. Nobody knew where I was from. They didn't understand my race because I was brown, but I spoke with this very strong English accent. So they didn't know how to be racist to me, even if they thought racist things. And so that moment made it really clear America was my home and now I need to find a way to solidify that. And so I started applying for visas immediately and it took me a few years, but eventually, yeah, I made it my home. But so pretty much since I was 17, America has felt like my home. So 22 years, the majority of my life, this has been my home. It's so interesting to hear people talk about being drawn to New York City, because I do think New York City is one of these very unique places where people self-actualize through their clothing choices, yeah. right? You can you can truly yeah. create who you want to be Absolutely. by your wardrobe, right? And, and no one's judging you. How do you think just your experience working around fashion and helping people find their style and their voice all of these years, how do you help people to be like the best version of themselves by creating their look? In my opinion, it's my greatest 
skill in life is making it clear to somebody and getting them to to jump on board with me to make it clear that the thing that they're putting on their body isn't just the thing that they're putting on the body. It, it communicates so much more than they ever might imagine. And so when I first got the job on Queer Eye, I knew that so many people would just say, oh, he's just a guy that puts clothes on people. It's so shallow. It's so frivolous. Who cares? But what I was so happy about when I watched the show and when the audience watched the show is that they understood for the first time possibly ever what a difference this makes to this person's life. It wasn't just that he put clothes on somebody. It's this person understood what this person was all about. We didn't go to a fancy designer store and say, this is fashion. So put it on. If it was on a runway, it's fashion. No, you work at Target. Your life is very different from mine, but I understand you. I see you. I want to give you the best wardrobe that I can that is available within your immediate community that will make sense for your life. All I'm doing is buffering the very best of you. I'm not trying to turn you into me. I'm not trying to turn you into Gigi. I'm not trying to turn you into any of those people. I'm trying to make you the best version of yourself. And I think that's the power of what I do on the show. And because I'm usually going into these people's homes, I try my very best to never wear a label, even though no one's silly enough to believe that I'm only shopping exclusively at Target, but I won't wear obvious logos to a hero. We call them our heroes. I don't wear those things to a hero's house because I don't want them to think. Tan assumes that this is the only version of what style is. I want them to understand that they get to feel great at any price point. And that truly is how I feel. That's how I felt before the show. I couldn't afford, 10 years ago, I couldn't afford fancy clothes. I I lived at H&M, Zara, and whatever other store I could afford. But I still think I look better than most people who are wearing designer clothes because I understood how to put a look together that made me feel confident. And so what I'm doing really isn't styling anyone. What I'm doing is encouraging them to feel confident in the clothes that they're wearing. I think that's so well said. And I just want to take a moment for the fact that you call them heroes. The heroes of their own lives. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Yes. I, that show has brought me to tears many a time. Um, oh, thanks. In your own style evolution, you're a, you're a bona fide celebrity, right? People recognize you on the street. You're recognized everywhere you go. Did you also feel in your personal style that you had to kind of have this shift where you're like, I have to show up as Tan France wherever I go and I can't wear the sweatpants to the grocery store anymore? Yes, 100%. It's actually the most frustrating part of this job. (laughs) I can imagine. The reason why I got the job is because I made it really clear I don't do trends, I don't do fads, I, I love a classic piece. However, you can't help but play into the noise that you hear constantly, which was from our industry, the fashion industry, people questioning, well, why is he the person that's dressing people? He wears a suit. He wears a nice pair of pants. He wears a classic button up. He's not pushing a boundary. And so I felt the pressure to kind of keep up and almost burn my stripes by putting on clothes that made me feel like, okay, I understand. I see what the trend is. I will lean into it. But that's not my typical aesthetic. I'm a much more classic person. I live in a pair of blue jeans and a white t-shirt and maybe an oversized blazer or leather jacket, but that's my wardrobe. But when Whenever I go on TV or if I'm doing any kind of public appearance, I will push it a little bit further so that people in our world also understand there's a reason why he gets to be the person that is doing this for a living. But sometimes I want to say, I feel perfectly fine in just my blue jeans and my white t-shirt. And I don't want to be judged for it. Well, your outfits on Next in Fashion are extravagantly fabulous. Thanks. I love them so much. To go back to the mental health component that you were talking about when it comes to getting dressed and clothes in general, for me, each Queer Eye episode is truly like a non-urgent mental health intervention. This person, or these heroes, as you call them, are um, stuck in a rut of their own creation. You've got to get them out. You give them self-care tips. And most importantly, you show that it's never too late to change right? You're not too old and it's not too late. And that is something I constantly say to everyone who will listen to my advice. You don't have to keep dressing the way that you did yesterday. I'm curious if you ever check in with the heroes after. 
Oh, yeah. Full disclosure. And I always try and make sure that I'm as honest as possible and as real as possible. It's, the, the, it's my currency. I think the reason why I've become successful in entertainment is because people usually know I'm going to say what I want to say, whether people like it or not. I will never be mean. I try my very best to not be mean, but I will always be as honest as I possibly can. I don't keep in touch with all of them. Mm-hmm. Some of them I don't have a great relationship with because they didn't open up enough. They didn't lean into the experience or maybe they just didn't like my personality. They preferred one of the others and that's lovely. That's okay. I don't expect to be everyone's best friend and I don't want to be everyone's best friend. That's a lot of pressure. (laughs) And so there are many, many every season, almost everyone every season, I have a wonderful relationship with and they're so respectful and so kind and so open to the experience that I check in regularly to say, how you doing? What's going on? Almost everyone has kept up with the lessons that Jonathan and I teach them. Really? Because they see such a massive improvement and such an incredible response from the people around them, not just the audience, that it's hard to give that feeling up. You know, when you put an outfit on, you feel mega and you get a load of comments that day, you want to wear that thing again. Like you want to feel that way again. Why would you go back to the thing that made you feel crappy about yourself? And so what I do find with almost every hero is that they stick with, I mean, they evolved their wardrobe and that's exactly what they should do. We're just planting seeds. We need them to water those seeds to make them grow. So yeah, all we're doing is offering basically a starter kit. And what I've seen our heroes do from that point is beautiful. To piggyback off of this idea of what you and Jonathan do, right? He does the beauty and self-care part of it. And then you do the sartorial. Yeah. It's funny because at first attributing psychological benefits to what we wear, what we look like, I thought was so superficial. Yeah. um, Until I actually ended up in a psychiatric hospital for OCD treatment a couple of years ago. And I actually was on Brooke's podcast to talk about this. And she was the first person I I told my story to. So just. Okay. (laughs) But it's interesting because, you know, the first day I walked in and I saw everyone wearing like Crocs and sweatpants and hoodies. And I was like, if I subscribe to this way of dressing, I will drown in a cold bath of shame very quickly. And it was really crucial to my recovery to dress to the nines Every single day, I wore makeup, a full face of makeup every single day. I went out and bought clothing just to wear to like self-compassion class and sessions with my psychiatrist. It was the biggest gesture of self-respect that I could possibly do for myself. So I actually think the psychological effects are so underrated. And I don't want to denigrate my other castmates when I say this. What they do is incredible. But there's something about what you do do personally with your physical body that has an effect like nothing else can. Yes, I think it's incredible what Anthony does and what Bobby does with homes and what Kramer can do with their emotional well-being is mind-blowing. Maybe it's a, a unique quality. I would like to believe it's not, but you know when you're feeling kind of down, you're feeling kind of blue, let's say, for example, the first few weeks of COVID, you looked in the mirror and you saw yourself in sweats or stuff that you couldn't care less about putting on your body anywhere else. It makes you feel a certain kind of way. But when I started dressing up again at home as if I was going to go out, my mood shifted. And I just think there's something to that. And so if we're doing that with heroes who have never done that, it's not just during the pandemic, they've never done that. That has a major psychological shift for them. That's so real. The other thing that you do that is so helpful is when you go shopping with people, teaching specific shopping tips, like just when you get into the dressing room, looking at it from all angles. One of the um, tips that I heard recently that I thought was such a good filter in terms of buying new clothes is if you were wearing this, would you want to run into five people that day? And I was like, yeah, that's a good filter. That's brilliant. Yeah, that's a really good one. What are other kind of filters that you use to help people figure out what they should be buying and what they should maybe leave in the store? A couple of things. So one that I I've mentioned on on the show and I can't remember when, but a lot of people who have never considered themselves stylish people don't really feel confident with their style. The best advice I think I can give is think of a person in your industry or maybe not in your industry. Maybe you're really into sport. Maybe your, your sport is soccer and you're obsessed with David Beckham. 
when you go shopping, think what would David Beckham buy if he was on my budget? If you love, I don't know, the president and you love the president style and you think the president always looks chic, think when you go shopping, would the president buy this and wear this if he had my budget? That I think is the perfect jumping off point. It gives you a North Star to focus on when you're going shopping. And then when you're actually going physically shopping, this is for women in particular, but I know that men suffer with this affliction also. Body image. When you go into the dressing room, I used to own women's wear brands. Take two sizes of everything you want to try on into that fishing room. Yes, you may believe that you are a size six. That's a good one. And you've told yourself you're a size six. It's okay if in that brand you're a size eight. That's Mm -hmm. okay. Nobody ever needs to know. And (laughs) that size six isn't fitting you right and it's going to make you look like a sausage. Right. Why would you want that? Go for the size eight and it's going to make you feel so much better. And you don't want that moment where you think, God, this isn't fitting me. I don't want to wiggle out to the main floor and have to grab grab the size that I actually am. You've already got it in there. Nobody's ever going to know which size you purchased. Mm. There's so much shame for women associated with trying on in a store. Just do yourself a favor before you go in, take two sizes. That is so real. That is such a great tip. And I also, on the show, but I also say this to real life people that I'm helping, stop buying things that you will one day fit into. Like that's doing something to your mental health that you will never understand the gravity of. That's reminding you that you're not great the way you are. You are. Just buy the thing that fits you now. It's going to do you so much better than the thing that you're waiting to achieve. I know you've become a dad. Is your son, is he one years old yet? He is. He's almost two. He turns two in July. Oh my gosh, almost two. Okay. Children around the same age. And so is he showing any like propensity for certain clothes? Does he have preferences and color yet? You know, the funny thing is... Gillian's laughing, but like they really do. Like I feel like Mommy's so stylish. Trust me. I, I, I know. Up until a week ago. Okay, so what what happened a week ago? Up until a week ago, we mostly put him in onesies. Okay. Because we change his diaper a thousand times. Right. Like it, he has, this boy, which is we're so grateful for, he poops a lot, which is great. That's every parent's dream. Like That's you great. want your child to be going a lot. <laughs> and so we have to change him a lot. And I am what we call a lazy parent. <laughs> which means I'm not putting on a full look seven times. It's just not happening. I'm not right. changing his diaper five, six times a day, seven times a day, and then redressing him that many times. Not even Tan France. If Tan France isn't doing it, then no one's doing it. <laughs> no, not at this age. Later, like when he's like five, six, fine, but or maybe even three or four. But at this age where I've constantly got to change his diaper and he's constantly getting dirty, I just think it's not happening. And so I have a double zipper situation where I can change his diaper within a minute, it's done. Yeah, yeah. However, a week ago, this is going to sound like a weird brag, it's not. But I went on the Jennifer Hudson show and Jennifer Hudson's team gifted a bunch of clothes that I thought, well, we're never going to use this. That's so nice of you, but they're like boy clothes. They're like pants and shirts and button-ups and all that kind of stuff that I've never put my son in. He's only ever in onesies. He found it in his drawer and held it up and go, ah, 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 which is his sign to say, let's put this on. And so he had this weirdly Hawaiian shirt on <laughs> with a pair of pants and a pair of crocodile shoes. I'm like, oh okay, gosh. if that's what you want to wear today, fine. He looked, I mean, he looked so cute. I don't know if it was because he was really into the style or just that he got to choose what he was wearing. Yes. Yes. I love seeing like their faces light up when they see their reflection in the mirror and they're wearing something that they want to wear. It's the best. You're like, this is why people love clothes. I had gone to work. My husband had said, look, when you get home, you've got to put this shirt back on him and watch the way he is in the mirror. So I did. And the amount of times he went over to the mirror to check himself out was amazing. It was so cute. Yes. I don't know if you guys have ever seen these baby lab studies that were conducted at Yale. Babies, bottom line, the main takeaway, I mean, you should watch it. It's all on YouTube. But the main takeaway is that babies are so much smarter and so much more aware than how we conceive them to be. So I am not remotely surprised by this. It was lovely to see. And since then, we're like, okay, what do you want to wear? I love that. He gets to choose. 
And does he? He does every day. <laughs> I mean, it, it's still often a onesie because I've tried to get rid of a lot of the other things, but it's a more colorful, playful version of what we would ordinarily go for. Because the first year or so, we mostly kept him in black onesies. I wanted him to look so chic. Tan, you're speaking my language. I was like, this is an aesthetic household. He's in the beige and like the grays yeah. and the, and now all he, he's discovered Elmo. All he wants to do every morning is wear red. He's like, I want my red shirt. I want uh, my Spider-Man boots. And I'm like, what about these beautiful shearling slippers over there? And he's like, no, I, I'm, I have no interest. I mean, I know you can't control how a kid turns out when it comes to their aesthetic or what they're into. But I really hope that if I put him in black onesies, that he'd look so chic all the time that eventually <laughs> he would just learn chic. But that's not the case. Yes, yes. He wants that dodgy Hawaiian shirt. I do want to hear a little bit more about your self-care routine because as busy people, it can be very hard to find time to do like the full AM, PM skincare routine. Then you add on parenting on top of it. Yeah. When you wake up in the morning, what's your AM skincare routine? So I don't do my skincare routine until after I've worked out. So most days I work out. Okay. And then after that, I What will... type of workout are you doing? Are you doing like weights, Pilates? I do weights. See, I'm not the one on the show that takes his clothes off a lot. <laughs> and he's the one that does that. However, I would like to believe one can tell that I work out that a fair amount. I just, yeah. I'm just not as obsessed with it as aunties. So I do weights a lot. And then I also do cardio. I have a trainer. I usually have a trainer, but I just do enough to be able to stay healthy. Most of it for me really is help. A lot of my family had diabetes and passed away because of the, um, the symptoms hear. from diabetes. That's okay. It just It's almost every one of my elders has had diabetes. It's such a common thing in the South Asian community. And so I always told myself, when I was younger, I don't want to be like my elders. I want to take care of myself. I want to work out. I want to eat better so I can live for my children. And so I've worked out since I was like 17, 18, very consistently. And when I don't work out, I really feel blue, like I do need it. And then when I get home from the gym, Ooh, that's when, oh yeah. Sorry, about the gym quickly. Yeah. You've actually said something that I love about the gym, which is advice for those that find it difficult to kind of get their bum up and, and hit the weights, which is... Yeah finding a cute gym outfit to get you there. and That does make a difference. It does. And I want to hear more about that because that's actually a DBT tactic, which is dialectical behavior therapy, which is opposite action. So you do the opposite thing to what your biological impulse would be. Oh. So in order to get yourself to the gym, something you don't want to do, wear something cute, invest in an actual outfit, right? You've said, yes. you mentioned that as a tip and I loved that because I also have issues with that. When I was first going to the gym, so between like 17 and 25-ish, I would just put on anything. I couldn't care less. And then one day there was this boy I was really into and I thought he's not going to be into me if I don't look better at the gym. So I can't just look like I rolled out of bed. And so I purchased some new gym clothes and they fit better. They looked better. For the first time ever at the gym, I was like, oh, I look decent. Like, mm -hmm. I feel good. Yeah. And therefore, that dude is actually checking me out. Wonderful. Anyway, I ended up sleeping with him. It was a terrible mistake. It was an absolute <laughs> nightmare. It went nowhere. We've all been there. We've all been there. Don't sleep with people at the gym. It's such a mistake. Because then you've got to change gym, which is not fun. Anyway, so since then, I've, I've worn clothes that make me feel really good. It's always an outfit I put together. However, this is a, a really random PSA. And I have no right to say this because I'm not a woman. I don't identify as female. However, there is a point where it gets a little too much. I go to a gym that I really like a lot. It's the best gym I've ever been to. However, a lot of my female friends won't go because they say it's so intimidating because it's a bunch of hot moms. So in Utah, there's a lot of Mormons and Mormons typically have their kids really young, like yeah. 19, 20, 21. And so a lot of these girls are in their very early 20s. They bring their kids and the kids go into the crash or daycare, whatever you call it. And then they go and work out, but their hair's done, full face of makeup. They're in this gorgeous little outfit. And I just think, okay, you went a bit too far. Like you don't need a full face of drag makeup. Chill out. And you didn't need to curl your hair before this. Like it, you could have just come with decent hair. Anyway, so that's a lot. But to a certain extent, I think it's great. It puts you in the right mind frame to be working out. And then when I get home, I will do my proper shower, clean my face. I exfoliate. I will wash with a Tata. I'm just going to give the names. I'm not sponsored by any of these companies, never have. But I do get gifted some of these things. So Tata Harper Cleanser is 
incredible. It's my favorite one. It's the only one I use. The cream cleanser with the exfoliation in it. Also love that, but I only use that maybe twice a week because okay. I don't like to exfoliate too often. Like too much. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's the green one and it smells, it so smells good. healthy. No. It's gorgeous. Yes. Uh, so that I use every day. And then twice a week, I will use the, uh, the exfoliant one. And then after that, I know you said that sometimes it's hard when you're a parent to do a full routine. I need it. My skin's really important to me. Yes. I'm on camera. I get it. So then I will use P, gosh, is it called P50? Biologique Recherche. Biologique Recherche P50, yes. Yeah. Stinks to high hell. It smells like <laughs> the worst kind of doctor's office or hospital. But it, when it smells that bad, I'm like, it's got to work. Like, it's so good. Isn't that so sick? This reverse psychology the beauty industry yes. has on us. The worse it smells, the better it must be for you. Yeah, it's so intense, but I do think it's fantastic. And I don't know why I think it's fantastic, but I love it. So that I use, then I go in with uh, Dr. Sturm Glow Drops. Yes. Love the Glow Drops. Love the Glow Drops so much. And then I use Dr. Sturm Under Eye Cream. And then I will use a cream called Beauty Bio. It's the Quench Cream. And I use it as a night cream, but I use it in the day because I have relatively dry skin and I live in Utah, which is incredibly dry. And I just like my skin to be a term that we use in England, England is unctuous. I like unctuous skin. What does that mean? It means you could eat it, like you want more of it. It's just, I like creamy skin. And so, yeah, so then I use that. And then I don't wear makeup anywhere for on camera for press, but never. I just, I will fill in my brow here. And then if I've had a really rough night or if I've got a blemish, I will conceal that or I'll conceal that. But typically I do wear makeup. So my skin is always clean. Yes. Now you skipped a very important step, which I'm sure you use. What's your sunscreen of choice? <laughs> that is fair. Beauty Bio, I mix it in with my moisturizer. Okay. So Beauty okay. Bio has this really, it's my favorite SPF. It's called the Protector. It's not chalky. It's not white. It's none of that. It's lovely. It's got a yeah. slight tint to it, which is nice. Nice. Okay. I'll have to check that out. Thank you for taking us through the routine. Of course. And my night routine is basically the same. I just don't, I just don't use biology recherche at night. But other than that, I use pretty much all the same stuff. It makes me feel like a different person when I do a full skincare routine. Yeah. Yeah. And Brooke talks about this a ton in her show as well. Like the mental health component of even just cleaning your face. The routine of it. Yeah. Seeing the dirt come off. I am somebody who likes a ritual. Mm. My whole life is rituals outside of work because my work is so chaotic and everything's ad hoc. Like nothing is normal about what I do for a living. And there's no real structure. Some One week I'm shooting a show, the next week I'm flying for an appearance. I work at least 350 days a year, no, around 350 days a year. Last year I had 19 days off total. Like I worked every other day th last year. And so if I can have some kind of ritual routine, it grounds mm. me. And so my ritual is the same every day. I wake up, I have my coffee, I tend to my child, I go to the gym, I do my skincare routine, then I will do my day, whatever that day entails. And then when I enter my hotel room or my home, I will do my nighttime skin routine and then I will go to bed. It's the same thing every day. Are rituals something that you've always embraced or something that you arrived at and really started to value as you got older? Definitely as I got older. Same. Yeah. Definitely as I got older. Definitely as I got into the workforce, I'd say. When I really started to hit my 20s, I need something that makes me feel, that feels familiar. I need something that I can hang my hat on and say, I know this. I can excel at this. This makes me feel good. Whereas most of the day, regardless of your job, things are thrown at you or at school, college, whatever, things are thrown at you that are out of your control. I am a quite a controlling person. I like things to be done a very particular way. I'm very type A. And so that helps me having that little bit of control each day. I'm sure you do plan out your outfits in advance, but have you ever considered having like a uniform approach to your dressing? Mm. I know you went to school with uniform. Gillian and I had uniforms. And so I see these people, especially that work in fashion and they have yeah. uniforms and I'm like jealous. I'm like, ooh, like just yeah. wake up and not think about it and have that mental space free. There's a guest judge we have on Next in Fashion who was a guest judge for a couple of times on season one then was our main guest judge on season two. His name is Jason Bolden. He's a stylist, a wonderful stylist. Mm -hmm. And he has a uniform. 
his is just all black. Whenever he's doing the job on TV, we needed him to not wear all black. People on screen don't typically wear all black. That's for behind the scenes. And so he wore not all black, but typically when he works, that's his wardrobe because it doesn't matter what he's wearing as long as it's all black. It's an outfit and it's his look. He doesn't have to think about it. If I were a stylist behind the scenes, 100%, I would just wear my jeans and white t-shirt every day. I love that look. It's a classic. But because of what I do, I think I'm expected to have a different look regularly. I think people expect me to keep up with what's going on in the fashion world and push myself if I'm encouraging others to push myself. So the answer, unfortunately, is no. I would love it. And when I get out of this, I don't plan on being on camera for too long. Really? Oh, yeah. Why is that? Gosh, so many reasons. When I first started this job six and a half years ago, we shot Queer Eye. It didn't come out until five years ago, just over five years ago. And I thought, I'll do this one season and that's it. Because I wasn't an entertainer. This was not my life. This was never meant to be my life. But you never did any entertainment before the show. Nothing. Never auditioned for a show. I didn't want the show. I was hounded. I'm glad they did. But I was hounded by these people to take the darn audition. I was like, I'm, I'm now, I'm a business person. I'm a businessman. I've just retired. I'm going to enjoy my retirement. My dad's dream was always to retire by 50. And he died at 47. And so I always said, okay, I want to retire by 40 because God forbid, if I end up the way all my elders ended up, which was dying by 50, I want to have like 10 solid years of just not having to work for the man. And so my dream was always to retire by 40. And then somehow it happened at 32. Not somehow. I worked damn hard and I created opportunity and I I retired at 32. And then a few days later, this TV show was calling saying, will you be on this TV show? And I was like, no, bitch. Like, of course I won't. That's insane. That sounds ludicrous. And then I ended up getting the job. And even after shooting season one, I thought, well, this was cute, but I'm never doing it again. Like, this is so not my life. And then the show came out and I was like, oh, actually, this is really nice. Like the opportunity that this created is really nice. And maybe I did really enjoy doing the show because I did. The actual filming of the show is really fun. And so I committed to doing another season. And then every time I'd be like, okay, that's it. Like I was only ever meant to do one season. I'll do a couple more and that's it. And somehow we're five years in and I'm like, I can't believe I'm still shooting shows. But the reasons why I don't think I want to be on for much longer than the next few years, I want my kids to have as normal a life as possible. And maybe I missed the boat with that. But by the time they hit like seven, eight, nine, I would love for them to not have the parent that their fellow kids or the the parents know, oh, I watched your dad's show or your dad said this dumb shit in an interview and now I'm going to punish you for it. No, but it's such a great show and your son's going to be so proud. Once he's old enough to understand, it's such important work that you're doing. I selfishly hope that you stay on a screen of some sort for a very long time or even even a podcast. I mean, I think you just have so much like wisdom and intuition and an ability to connect with people that is very felt. So, Well, here's what I want to do. I want to produce. So I'm already producing. I've produced a couple of shows that are either coming out later next year or this year. um, And we are going to produce a lot more. And so I want to do what many have done. If you know the likes of Ava DuVernay or Mindy Kaling, they create incredible opportunity for their communities and they give voice to people who have not had a voice. Mm. And I've been given this massive opportunity. I'm a queer Muslim, South Asian. Like I was one of the very first, if not the first. And I just think, okay, I don't need to do this all alone. I can champion the success of others with this power that I now have. And I'm going to age out. Like eventually people aren't going to care what I think is hot. And so I want to use that and be able to produce behind the scenes, not necessarily retire, but just retire from on screen. Before you got onto the show, before Netflix found you and pulled you into this five-year journey, you went through a bit of a difficult time. Yeah. Would you mind talking about that? No, I don't mind talking about that at all. For people in my position, it is important for us to, if they feel strong enough, to be able to talk about it because I think it makes it understandable to others and makes them feel hopefully less alone. Mm -hmm. If they can see somebody who they think is in a position of great power that went through the struggle that they are currently going through or have gone through, I think that's important. 100%. And so it's funny, there was an episode of Queer Eye maybe three seasons ago they blur into one at this point. But a few seasons ago, we had a wonderful hero who I love called Wesley, who was in a wheelchair. And Wesley asked me during the shopping trip and it made it into the episode where he said, how are you so confident? 
Like, how are you so confident every day? I see you do this, that, and the other, and you're always so confident. And I immediately started to cry saying, you have no idea what it takes for me to get to this point every day that leads you and the public to believe that I'm a confident person. And so I thought, oh gosh, I should talk about this more. We're not the most confident people, even though we play that on TV, takes a lot. We do so much to make sure we are the most confident we can be. And that includes taking care of our physical appearance, like doing the work in the morning to give yourself positive affirmations, to remind yourself of why you're doing what you're doing and your position in the world. But before all of this, before I went on TV, I owned businesses. I owned four companies and owning four companies is incredibly stressful. I had a lot of employees to take care of and a lot of people counting on me to do well in business for them to be able to achieve success themselves. And so all of my four companies were at that point doing pretty darn well, which is such a luxury, but I was the person running the companies. And that stress and that weight was often too much. Mm -hmm. And so within that last year of my business, I felt suicidal multiple times. And a couple of times I truly thought that I was going to do something insane. And so I had to call my husband one day on the road home from work. And I was in tears. He was at work. My husband was a pediatric nurse and I was in tears crying so hard. And he knows I wasn't a dramatic person at all. I usually will just always muddle through and get through. I I was such a positive person. I am such a positive person, but sometimes even the most positive people can't see the wood for the trees. They just can't. And so I was on my way home. There was a bridge. I took the same route home every day. There was a bridge and I just thought, I just want to drive off that bridge. I just want to drive off that bridge. I just want to drive off that bridge. I want all of this stress to go away. And that's the easiest thing I can imagine doing is that. And so I called Rob and I was like, Rob, you know how suicidal I've been feeling. I don't know how to get out of this. And I feel like I want to drive off this fucking bridge. I'm parked on the side of the road. I need you more than I've ever needed you. My husband's the best. He was like, please just stay there. He was so upset. He was like, I'm going to leave work now and I'm, I'm coming to get you. Don't drive. And so on that day, we came to an agreement that I was going to sell the businesses. We had made enough money to be able to retire. What else could we possibly need? And at that point, it was just shame. I just didn't want people to think that I couldn't handle the stress, which is why I wanted to sell my businesses. I wanted to prove myself constantly and really show how strong I was and how successful I could be. And my husband was like, haven't we gotten there already? Like we can sell the businesses and live a life that most people could never live. We can have our children and give them a life that most people could never provide for their children. Isn't that enough? What more do we need? So yeah, he was the grounding force I needed and the wake up call I needed to be like, okay, you're right. I'm going to action this. I'm going to sell these businesses. I've done all I can do. There's nothing else I need to prove to anyone. And I think so much of it, this is a callback to childhood. I was just so sick of hearing from everyone around me that my people were trash, that we're going to achieve nothing, that we needed these white people to pay for us. And my dad used to say, never accept anything from the white community. You don't need white people to save us. We can work hard and provide for ourselves. And when you hear that so often as a kid, that sticks with you. And so I just wanted to create a future for my family where we I never need to rely on anybody. My children would never need to rely on anybody. I just took it too far. That's incredible um, to hear you speak about that and having that perspective, because I think so many people lose sight of that, right? Like what, what is all of the money yeah. for? And you know what's interesting, Brooke, is that probably goes without saying, but when you're on a big show, you get paid real well. And so now I don't work for the money. It's very nice, don't get me wrong. It's lovely to earn well, but I don't work for the money my kids are taken care of. Hopefully my grandkids will be taken care of. So that's no longer a motivator. And that's not meant to sound like an arrogant comment or a boastful comment. It's hopefully to have people understand who are listening to this, thinking that you don't need to achieve just endless amounts of money to be happy, this probably is such a privilege to say because I am in a privileged position. I would have been in a privileged position 10 years ago. And when we retired, we didn't have tens of millions of dollars. It wasn't like we had this astronomical amount of money. We had enough money to live and to provide a home for our children. We had enough money to be comfortable. And so all this extra has been lovely, but I don't work for the money. It's so nice to just work because I love what I do. Any tips you have for anyone going through depression in terms of how you got out of it? 
if you feel comfortable, if you have the support system, yes, I know therapy is wonderful. And if you can have a therapist, you can afford a therapist, that's great. Work with people around you. Cultivate a circle of people around you who you can talk to really openly. I don't have a therapist. I've never been to therapy. Everybody I know has a therapist. Oh, really? But it's because... I talk to people. I talk to my friends. I talk to my family. And often when you are not progressing in your development with your mental health, there's a tipping point where your friends might not want to hear it anymore and you do need to seek professional help. But if you are just feeling down or blue and if you have a good group of people around you, they want to know it. They don't just want to know that you're having a good day. I couldn't care less about the weather. Don't talk to me about the weather. Tell me about how you're actually feeling. Basically, what I'm saying is stop being so American. And I can say that as an American now. I'm a citizen. Stop being so American. It's the only country I've ever experienced where people's feelings are hidden so much. There's so much passive aggression. Talk about it. Say what you want to say. Discuss it with your friends and family. If you are having a bad time at work, tell your boss you don't like the way they are with you. Tell your colleague, this is how I would like you to be with me going forward. I don't like this behavior for X, Y, Z reason. I think that that's why I've become so mentally strong and have such a happy surrounding is because I've introduced boundaries and I really am particular about what I discuss with people. And by the way, talking to anyone, friends included, that is a validated, well-researched form of therapy. It's talk therapy. And in Zimbabwe, they actually have grandma benches where neighborhood grandmothers set up shop. There's like four of them and they all sit. They started with four. Now there's actually tens, but they invite the townspeople to sit and just talk to them and the mental health, they charted it and the mental health of these people in terms of how they reported their own levels of happiness and distress. Yeah. The distress was heavily mitigated in their happiness level. Yeah. Shut up. There's research that's been done with the South Asian community in particular because we, our communities are so tightly knit. We talk about so much together. I think that that really does mm. make such, uh, that has such an impact on the way we behave and how we perceive ourselves that we're constantly talking to each other. We've constantly got a circle of people who are willing to listen. Absolutely. When do you feel most beautiful? Oh, this is going to sound so cheesy, but I want to say it anyway. When I'm with my husband and I, I don't need to be wearing anything nice. I, I know that we shouldn't look for external validation, but sometimes it's nice, especially when it's from your loved one or the person you've chosen to be your person. I feel my most beautiful when I'm at home with my husband and we are communicating and we're sat having dinner or sat on the sofa and he will reach over and touch my hand, my leg, my arm, whatever. It's, it's nothing sexual. It doesn't matter. After all these years, gosh, it's been 15 years. None of that matters. It's the emotional connection and the touch that makes me feel like the most important person in the room to him. That's beautiful. I love it. And I'm so grateful for my husband. He's arguably the best person I've ever known. Lovely. Thank you for that. And my last question is what drives you? It has changed a lot over the years. Many years ago, it was money and success. By success, I mean visual success. Like I've now got my own apartment. I've got this car that I paid off, like those kind of things. That was in my twenties. Now that's not it at all. The thing that drives me is my son. Hmm. That when you become a parent, something shifts completely and everything that drove you or motivated you before then, for me completely goes out the window. And I'm assuming that's the case for many parents. Brooke, maybe you can speak to that also. But my driving factor at this point is, will my son respect what I do, appreciate what I do? And so that pretty much guides every decision I make now. I can relate to that very much. I'm curious, how can you relate to that? Um, I think when you have a child, you're, you want to make sure that you're a happy person so that you can be happy with your family. Yeah. And anything that makes you unhappy or agitates you, like when you're doing work, you're not proud of, like you don't feel right inside, right? When you're doing work that's fulfilling, you're happy and and you bring that energy to your family. And then I think having a child also, you understand how your energy is like absorbed by other yeah. people around you. So I, yeah. I, I feel more inspired and driven to do work that 
makes me happy and fulfilled. The flip side of that is it also makes me the most boundaried I've ever been. I've always been a very boundaried person mm. and I'm always very clear. I signal my intentions with almost everybody I speak to or who I become friends with. These are the parameters. Now go ham. But there's certain things that I won't accept. And if you ever interview Jonathan or anyone on the cast of Queer Eye, they will all say, if you ever to ask them one thing about Tan, every one of them will say the same thing. He's the most boundaried person that you will ever know, which makes us have the best relationship, the most healthy relationship, because we all understand the parameters. And so not only does my son drive me he drives me to set greater boundaries. I say no to more than anything I've ever said no to before because I'm like, that's going to take me away from time with my child or it's going to make me unhappy. Brooke, to your point, you want to be a happy parent. I want to be a happy parent. If I'm doing something that's miserable, making miserable, I'm shooting a project that's making miserable, I'm done, not doing it. My drive works in many ways. And one of those drives is to make sure I say no to enough that is making me unhappy. You'll know real when you get it. It will say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Right. I hope you all loved that conversation that I had with my friend Gigi, my old and dear friend Gigi and Tan France. I learned so much. I feel so inspired by him. I loved his perspective on what success means to him, how he wants to show up as a parent. Also, if you've missed it, he's got baby number two on the way. So lots of really exciting things coming from the world of Tan France. I am now a forever fan. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. If you love today's episode, take the time to rate and review on the Apple Podcast app or Spotify and also subscribe to Driven Minds. If you like mental health conversations, I promise you, you're going to love Gigi's podcast. I will link to it in the show notes. Have an amazing day. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.